What happens in your world when someone dies? Are there gods? Are they deeply concerned about the comings and goings of people or aloof and indifferent? These sorts of questions are often tackled in our fictional settings, but I found few who do it better than our guests today. I'm excited to share their work with you and dive into how myth plays a role in your world building and how you can apply their techniques to your own stories. I think you're going to get a kick out of this one. Unseen forces screamed and a great star died, suddenly and without warning. A ring of life-bearing planets imploded together and a plethora of other worlds from unknown dimensions were ripped from their realities and merged with the swirling cosmic holocaust of the dying galaxy. And from ethereal voids came great minds like moths to flame, and these beings were crushed and absorbed into the chaotic madness. Boiling and churning cosmic souls from beyond time splintered and eldritch thoughts and emotions were forced into the new matter of collapsing realities. The elements and energies of life were pulled from vast universes and layered upon and within one another. The chaotic stew burned and struggled and fought for eons until a new cosmic consciousness came forth and realigned into one force whose will could shape the chaos into a great form. Ferrer was born, a consciousness and a world both immaterial and material, grounded physically in one reality, yet stretching into an infinite number of cosmic realms and ethereal planes unreachable by physical matter. Ferrer, the undying, a being of chaos, life stuff, and metaphysical energy. Life on Ferrer's physical planet began in the cooling waters and then spread to the land. It was simple at first and then grew complex and diverse. All manner of creatures and microbes thrived and lived and changed across Ferrer's lands and in its seas for unknown ages, and some new creed and desire, joy and melancholy. Then the world changed. In anger, Ferrer belched forth its molten soul and cleansed the lands and the seas. Most living things died, but a few survived. In the aftermath of the cleansing, a second cycle of life began and creatures again grew and lived and changed and some knew hate and fear, compassion and love. But after unknown ages, a second cleansing occurred and most life died, but some survived. Forevermore, all living creatures knew in the fabric of their souls that they existed only if Ferrer wanted it to be so. The will of Ferrer superseded all others, and for unknown ages, the many beasts of Ferrer believed the great will stood apart from their own, an enigmatic, unknowable, and wholly unapproachable power. But a few beasts began to wonder if this was truly so. So what I just read you there was the first page of Dino Beasts. It's a poetic description of their setting, Ferrer, written by the series creators, the Coates Brothers. Hi, I'm John Coates. I write and color Dino Beast. And I'm James. I'm the uh, artist on Dino Beast. Dino Beast is a fantasy adventure comic series with humanoid dinosaur characters in a world that mixes Paleozoic creatures and barbarian sword and sorcery action. Kumoto, 
the last survivor of a dinosaur barbarian clan embarks upon a desperate quest to rescue a mystical salamander princess. It's a race against time with Komoto facing an ever-increasing array of enemies and challenges in an adventure where the planet itself seems to bend its will against him. The comic drew me in from the word go. I was inspired by the setting and immediately wanted to know more. One of the things that stuck out to me about this comic was the depth of the mystery involved and the story's capacity for engrossing you in that setting while playing their cards close to the vest and leaving a lot of room for my imagination to wander. There are overlapping layers of mystery and depth. In the Warcraft Club, though, we really believe that you need to stick to your first love. So let's start at the beginning. Where do these ideas come from? James Coates breaks it down for us. One of our earliest inspirations, or when we were sitting down and we were like, hey, let's try to make a comic book together. And we hadn't decided on what it was going to be yet. We happened to be looking at a lot of those like old Masters of the Universe, like knockoff action figures from the 80s, where it's like like the He-Man body and then they just put a rubber dinosaur head on them. And we're looking at stuff <laughs> like that. And we're like, man, like, that's kind of fun. Like, it's almost more fun than a He-Man, a regular He-Man toy. Like, why didn't anybody do anything like that? And then all of a sudden we're like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe we should do something like that. And then it was like, well, well yeah, of course. I like dinosaurs. Oh, I like dinosaurs. Like, like that was like just a weird thing that just snowballed it. Like, oh, okay, yeah, that's what our comic is. Let's try to do that. And then from there, it was like, okay, now we start building. I guess just around that time, just reading a lot of sort of classic like pulp sword and sorcery yeah. stuff and then also you know we've always been big into dinosaurs and you know maybe i don't know if we just like got some new dinosaur books or something you know you just start to in your mind like just like kind of combine them and like oh why hasn't anybody ever done this that seems like a yeah. cool idea you know sort of these sort of humanoid dinosaurs and in a really primitive kind of world with all this stuff going on. And that kind of, I guess was really the first thoughts we had. And that was kind of the jumping off point of like, oh yeah, well, what else would, would you do with that? How would you make that make sense? You know? And so we started looking at like, well, how would we drop like an evolutionary chart? Cause that yeah. came pretty early on. Like, oh, well, how would this work? And then the decisions that I have, like, well, maybe all the characters are humanoid. Maybe they don't, didn't all evolve into growing hands maybe maybe the, you know some of them like they didn't need to because they're already sort of evolutionarily perfect like they Where don't they need, need to be you know yeah, yeah t-rex doesn't need big arms you know because he'll just he can crush everything with his face so he doesn't need the rest of it and yeah that just kind of started us going and then james started doing like sort of the first komodo drawings the first couple and like and then that everything just clicked right from there it was like oh yeah that works that's killer yeah. let's let's try and do something with that it's a super simple premise we can all relate to you're walking in the store and something catches your eye you get inspired by the idea and sort of want to take it a step further here we found what we call the fairy cake of the dino beast setting dinosaur barbarian fighting men sounds rad from there the Coates brothers expanded on their setting and developed more content and one of the things that I've noticed about their setting in Ferrer 
is that the dinosaurs, the different characters, frequently reference their belief systems, talking about it here and there and kind of developing it piece by piece in dialogue without ever fully giving us the big picture of what's taking place, the here's what actually happened moment. And this seemed really unusual to me, so I was super excited to talk to them about it. Because one of the things that really blows me away about your comic is that I, I, I think in a lot of media that I see, there's not a lot of thought to like an overarching kind of metaphysical truth that you see in them. You know what I mean? And usually these things are manifested in sort of a religious format that has like, you know, these belief systems behind it. And, and they're a little bit more kind of canonized and like organized, whereas fairer your home planet and also metaphysical entity that exists in this setting is is kind of something else i i want to know what inspired that where did that come from well when we were first planning the book we wanted it we knew we wanted it not to be just a plain like hack and slash empty action story you know just like barbarians yeah. but there's nothing more to it and yeah. um just sort of throwing around ideas and thinking about like, well, you know, what the cultures might be and would they have beliefs and like, would you have do like a gods and, you know, kind of a thing that's like real structured or not. And uh, we just kind of started to, you know, hit on this idea of a more just sort of like natural focused belief around the planet as, as its own living entity and um, how that might happen or how, how the people on fair would think it happened if it, and if it really exists or not, but they would still act in certain ways just based on thinking that it's a real thing. Yeah. And I guess, um, one of the things I think about when I'm trying to decide on like the design of some of the characters or their cultures is like in the real world, our real world, what would an animal actually be thinking about? Like animals yeah. wouldn't have, you know, they wouldn't be thinking about gods and buildings and whatever, but the, the planet and where they live would be really important to them. So I'm trying to incorporate like just a, a more natural setting in what they're, how they live, how they interact with the planet itself um, than yeah. what humans go through now. Cause it's a totally different, you know, world and society. Yeah. We're like removed from. We're like removed from the natural world now when we, you know, yeah. used to not be, we used to like be a part of it. So it's kind of like looking at the characters, uh, sort of pre-modern human approach. Yeah. I love that. There's, so, so there's two things that I noticed is one is you did it backwards, right? Like instead of saying here is, here is the reality and here's how people see it. You went, here's how people see it. And that might as well be a reality. Yeah. It almost looks like it kind of went that way. Is that a good way to characterize that? Yeah, yeah. They did it backwards. It seems like most of the folks who do world building like to start with the true story of what occurred. Such and such a god did X and the result was Y. And here's what people think about it. That's a very logical way of approaching things. First, we establish truth and then we talk about the interpretation. Instead, these guys went ahead knowing the type of story they wanted to tell and the creatures they wanted to inhabit their setting. What's important about this is the focus on story and big ideas over hyper detail. They began by saying, this is what we're interested in and worked away from it. The weird thing is that the results were 
even more interesting and nuanced. It led to a more deep take on their mythological and religious practices. There's an extreme diversity among the inhabitants of Faroe and their attitudes to their circumstances. All of it is driven by how they see their place in the world, which in turn drives the big picture and mythology. This manifests in the ways that different characters view death. Well, I think, I think on Fair, the characters, like death is more ever present just in their lives in general, but they view it as, you know, as more of a natural, just a natural process. And a lot of them have views on what happens afterwards that like fair has these other otherworldly realms that they will exist in and sometimes maybe spirits can come back from those realms and interact with them you know like different planes of existence um, um spirits right yeah so they have so it's probably it's a, it's like comforting so like if they die like they're in their own minds they're comforted to know what might ha what might happen next yeah i mean i guess a, a little bit of it would be i see different characters have different views on death though like the tyrannicons and the bigger predators seem more in touch with it's just an everyday thing like it could happen at yeah. any moment so for them it's almost just like more of like a valhalla type situation like if i go down <laughs> i'm going yeah to, you know i'm going somewhere better anyhow so let's let's just do this thing so I think yeah. we tried to differentiate that with some of the different races, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, especially when you get a division between herbivores and carnivores. Which is yeah, yeah. play off of, yeah. like, you know what I mean? Like, sort of like proactive uh, in causing the death and mayhem and reactive, yeah. <laughs> trying to avoid it. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. When you're higher up the food chain, you know, even in our world, Val, you know, we're on the top of the food chain. So maybe that plays into part of, you know, the way are indifference. Yeah, as opposed to something that's not. At this point, we started to dive a little deeper. See, they've started with a key premise, a big idea that they're working from and have begun to construct a whole broad mythology out of that content. There's tons to unpack here, but we're going to start diving into something more granular. See, their main protagonist, Kumoto, is a Hadrodont, the last of his clan, a member of a dying race with a history that sets them apart from other races. The Coates brothers invested a lot of effort into creating a broad evolutionary tree that shares parallels with our own here on Earth. The Hadrodonts seem to stand outside of that natural order. Their creation myth is unique, and the rest of the world they built responds to it. They've created their setting, and now they're contrasting it with a different element. This is part of what we assume led to the death of Kumoto's clan, and it's what informs his own bleak outlook. He frequently remarks on how the planet seems to be out to get him, but he simply refuses to die. He later encounters other Hadrodonts with different perspectives. Why does it seem like the whole planet is trying to kill them? I'll let John break this down. Yeah, yeah, the, Hadro, the Hadros are really interesting in that way. And like one aspect is because they're sort of vanishing, they're all growing up in like really small, isolated clans, not associated with each other because they're all in hiding. We start with Komodo and his view is that like they're cursed and Fair is actively pursuing them and out to get them. And then in book three, we finally introduce Radnock, 
and she's from a different clan. And mm. so she has a more positive view on fair and maybe it's into her and like where she grew up, it wasn't quite as violent towards them. And maybe there's things that they can do to sort of like ease the planet and sort of work with it instead of against it. And then they're like, and then the Hadrodons themselves, like they have this very specific sort of like evolutionary knowledge about how they started. And then mm. that sort of affects how they view the planet different from some of the other races. So like at the, then the front cover of the new book and then the back cover, we give you two images that show this sort of the Hadrodont sort of mother Fionnjar, which is like, as far as they know, was like the mother of all the Hadrodons. Yeah. But she was like a different species. And yeah. so it's like, so it's evolution taking a leap in one generation instead of a thousand generations to get to this new form. And so that's why in the last panel, you see like that her eggs are hatching, but they got arms and they're like screaming and hey, here's, here's the Hadrodons all of a sudden. But like, if this is their mother, that she is not like that. And so there's yeah. like their belief that she was able to commune with the energy of the planet and like make this happen. And so that kind of ties into their, their worldview. But some of the other species like don't have that or they evolved over a longer period of time. And so then when you start to hear their their ideas like are completely removed and they probably have no idea what the hadro belief system even is. Um, especially like the yeah. Tranthcons kind of, you kind of get, start to hint at it. Like they, they understand maybe what the Hadrodonts believe, but they think it was like an evil thing that happened. Yeah. And so that provides a lot of antagonists between their two sort of species. That, it makes a ton of sense to me because essentially like your metaphysics appears to be sort of ritualized evolutionism. <laughs> like it's, it's like, a, it's, it's like yeah, tied. It's, it's, it's fascinating stuff because the hadrodonts would be a crime to some and a miracle to others. So this is how this all ties together. They have their central thesis, dinosaur barbarians, and this led to the creation of their setting that sought to dive into the violent harmony of the natural world, which contrasts with their main character's backstory. His species' unnatural-seeming immaculate conception compared with the setting's more evolutionary approach. It creates conflict. It builds it into the setting. The Coates brothers make use of this in their storytelling to add color around a world, in a story that would otherwise be a fairly straightforward one involving a desperate chase. All these elements are swirling around in the margins, and we as a visitant see tons of room for them to create even more stuff. Essentially, their setting bottles wonder and keeps you constantly squinting into the margins of their lore to see if you can scrape out a little more mystery. I think this last thought, though, might be the most important lesson they have to teach us. You can be excited about an idea for like a few hours or a few days, but then you might lose interest or you're like, okay, well, that was that. I, I want to do something else now or I'm not, I'm not into it anymore. Or, you know, you get tired because it takes a lot of work and a lot of extra time outside of your regular job and stuff to like to work on this stuff and to create these stories. And you got to have that excitement about your idea to 
to see it through all the way to the end, you know? Um, and like our story also is like the basic plot structure is like a really simple rescue story, a really basic fantasy. This princess is kidnapped and he, the hero is going to go and save her. Yeah. Um, and it's a little more than that, but that's the basic through line. And it's like really easy to follow. And then we can just kind of add to it and build on top of it. And we can do flashbacks and we can do all this other stuff, but we're not having to get into like an overcomplicated sort of through plot, really. Yeah. Yeah. I said like that, that simplicity seems key. J James, did you have something to throw in? He, he said it pretty good. I, I mean, as the artist, I always looked at it as, you know what I mean? Like, we're doing a lot of cool stuff, like, I think with, you know, these world building and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, like, I'm here to draw, you know, dinosaur barbarians punching each other in the face. So, like, you got to keep the fun and the adventure in it to keep people engaged, being as engaged as an artist. I always like, when I think the, one of the best world building things is still, like, Terminator 1. Like, you get most yeah. of the history through a car chase. It's a giant car chase, and then, but that's where he's explaining from the future and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like that whole movie's a car chase, but you get a rich world <laughs> built out. So, you know, sometimes you got to have, make sure you have enough fun in there. So, the last and most important question is how do we make use of this in our own settings? Let's use an example in our not at all famous setting, Bear World. For those of you who aren't familiar, this is one of Seth and I's favorite ideas. Basically, what if bears were still a threat is the question posed by the setting. This is the fairy cake or the big idea that all our other ideas are going to come from. Bears are out there. They're dangerous and they're coming for you. I think it's tempting to sort of begin our mythology from scratch and to start generating gods independently, go all the way back to creation myth and start there. What I take from this conversation, though, is that we should first consider what we're trying to make and then work backwards from that to generate a mythology that dovetails nicely into the setting and provides a lot of apparent depth. So let's do that. Let's create some mythology for the bear world setting. So to start, let's not ask where the planet comes from, but where the bears come from. After all, they're the central theme in the setting. What's more, let's not seek the truth. Let's seek theories, because your character's conflicting beliefs about the setting are more important than the truth that's behind it all. If we had savage bears roaming around and that was all anyone ever knew about their lot in life, I assume that we'd get some believers who were ultimately pragmatic. The bears are here, they represent a reality, and death is always around the corner, and so we live our lives in a way that honors that concept. Live fully in the moment, because you don't know when they'll come. This could contrast to others who might see a distant hope. Some folks would likely think that there will come a day when the bears are gone and we can live freely. Their vision of heaven is one of safety, not decadence or consumption. They may have a vision of the afterlife being a high-walled city rather than an idyllic valley or natural setting. So when we're crafting religious vestments that the priesthood might wear, it might feature really prominent buildings or towers. Their cathedrals might be very tall and heavy structures that are very earthbound and rigid, rather than natural-seeming ones that mimic the way trees look. Uh, for example, modern cathedrals are actually 
designed to look like forests. When you walk through, the way that the stained glass reaches up and arches up is to give you a sense of the natural world. This may be something that these religious folks might avoid. This is the sort of mythology that you can build and craft into the setting that will make it feel more real. What's more, they may actually have questions of origin as well. Do the people of this setting think that the beasts that live around them are natural? Or do they think the bears maybe aren't meant to be there? Do they have theories about what caused them? Some past sin, maybe? This sort of creation myth could be fascinating addition to your world and promote all kinds of odd theories. It also could produce a stigma about magic use or alchemy or even science. They could have a theory that some errant experiment caused these bears and so they have doubts about it. Which would be an interesting contrast because the advancement of technology would be exactly what would be needed to combat the bears. We're already beginning to see conflicts in the story that are generated from this sort of mythology, created backwards, that makes the most sense for the setting. Rather than starting from the beginning, we now work backward from the present day. This then we can use to sort of flesh out the setting a little bit more and consider what other contrasting beliefs might be. Because usually when one set of beliefs emerges, another exists to contrast against it. There may be folks who say, we need to live in cities with high walls, and others who say, no, the bears are here because we didn't commune with nature appropriately. That was the original sin that caused them. We need to live out in amongst nature. The bears are less dangerous than you think. There may be a series of other beliefs that contrast there. We've already begun to create a very interesting mythology that could surround that and the way that might impact cultures. If we want to, from there, we can start to work backwards and consider what people before them may have believed or what people ahead of them might, and we can start to sort of formulate these ideas about creation myth. Maybe the bears erupted from a fissure in the ground, or came on a comet, or uh, were the result of some sort of bizarre experimentation and multiplied out of control. We don't know. But those theories could definitely be present in the world and could be ones that you kick around. There could be some in your setting, in the bear world setting, who claim to know a time before the bears, when there was a great calamity, sin or catastrophe that caused them, and it will lead your visitant to wonder. These sorts of breadcrumbs will give a visitant something to key into while they create their own theories. It's not so important that we have it all worked out that we have total clarity ourselves, but we should grapple with the beliefs of different characters, peoples, and factions within the setting. This is what it seemed like the Coates brothers were doing. Essentially taking their main concept, dinosaur barbarians, introducing the boundary of a sort of religiously canonized evolutionary tree, and then asking, what would the people of the planet think of this? Very little is presented as fact. I'd even take the opening monologue I read earlier as an example of some ideas rather than a hard canon story. This is an easy way to create enough world building for the visitant to have an inkling that they can run with rather than trying to get them to drink from a fire hose of exposition and hard facts. This also appears to work well for the creative process of the Coates brothers in that they themselves have theories that they can explore and invent. The ideas are not yet concrete, they're not static, but ever-changing and growing in their minds. There are still possibilities within their setting, and I think that makes it easier to keep writing. One of our biggest convictions at the World Craft Club is that you need to make what you love, and I think your audiences will thank you for it, rather than wasting a lot of time building details that you're not passionate about. So there you have it, a short course in creating mythology in a setting. It's time to draw some conclusions. Rather than trying to start your mythology from the beginning, out of a whole cloth, 
and extrapolating opinions from it. Start with your story, your characters, and your big idea. Think about how each of those different folks in your setting will respond to it. Leave lots of room for your visitant's mind to wander and trust them to expand it. Now, I'd highly recommend you go and find these guys and pick up their comics. You can find them at dinobeasts.com, D-I-N-O-B-E-A-S-T-S.com. They also have a Facebook page. They're also available on Instagram at JD Coates for John and J.A. Coates for James. All links will be available in the show notes. There's actually some more content from this interview, and I'll have to cut that into another episode about all the species of dinosaurs they included and how they built out their unique cultures. That'll be coming to your ears shortly. Oh, and if you love dinosaurs as much as we do, why not come hang out with us on our Discord server, where we're currently building the Primordia setting, featuring magic and dinosaur writing. It's been a blast making this collaborative world with our community, and I know you'll love it too. Link is in the show notes for you to join the party. Look, we're so glad you joined us here today. Please, if you haven't already and the show was useful to you, go ahead and rate it on your preferred podcatching app. If you think we don't quite earn five stars, send us the feedback via email at worldcraftclubpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. A link will be in the show notes for that. We can't wait to catch you next time for the Worldcraft Club podcast. Yeah, T-Rex doesn't need big arms, you know, because he'll just, he can crush everything with his face.